Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the executive director and founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marcelet. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marcelet, and you are in for a very interesting conversation today. We are talking about ableism, and we'll explain what that is in a moment, but I want to introduce my co-hosts today, Clement and Nika. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and it's good to be back. Yeah, good to have you guys back. So my name is Clement, and I'm from Vancouver. Uh, I'm totally blind, and right now I'm a youth mentor and volunteer at large with Blind Beginnings. And uh, the reason this conversation is important to me is because um, ableism, I think, is something that most people never really think about. Um, And in today's social context, where uh, we talk a lot about a different kind, a lot of different kinds of isms, uh, ableism seems to be the one that kind of gets left by the wayside a little bit. So I'm kind of curious and I'm keen to dive in a little bit more and kind of bring to light a few things that um, I think we as a society tend to either dance around or just aren't aware of, period. I'm Nika. I'm from North Vancouver. I'm 20 years old and I'm also a volunteer with Blind Beginnings. And I'm excited to talk about ableism because In the past year, kind of with the pandemic, I've done some research into different types of disabilities, and I kind of realized that ableism is more complicated than I thought it was. I thought it was simply just making fun of disabled people or just like bullying, but I think there's a lot more nuance to it, and it's like way more diverse than I thought it was. So the definition that I found online Um, ableism is discrimination in favor of able-bodied people, a belief that it is better to be able-bodied. So I feel like that might seem like, well, isn't it better to be able-bodied? Wouldn't most people think that? But no, (laughs) not necessarily. I think think we're going to get to that. Uh, I kind of want to, I want to, I kind of want to just jump in here really quickly and yeah. say that before this conversation starts, this conversation's goal is not to alienate anybody. Uh, we're not trying to point fingers here because this is, it's a bit of an edgy subject for a lot of people and nobody likes to be told that their good intentions are wrong and that's not what we're doing here. Um, so we just want to have a gracious, uh, open conversation about what our thoughts are in terms of what ableism is and you know how it manifests itself. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, we, we really want this to be educational. We want people to listen and maybe be surprised. You probably will be surprised at some of the things that we talk about and some of our feelings about some of the things that have happened mm-hmm. to us or mm-hmm. assumptions that are made about us and really sharing our perspective. So just like any ism, I think until you start doing your learning, you don't even realize 
that maybe you have certain prejudices or beliefs. So I, this is, you know, really, we, we always welcome comments and questions and opinions, and we're just sharing ours. So I thought we could start by talking about some systemic ableism. So bigger, bigger things that are really, you know, not, not an individual person's mm. ableism, but just the system is favoring people who are able-bodied. And there's lots and lots of different examples of this. Um, some that people might not be aware of. Well, just the fact that, I mean, laws have had to be passed in order for people with disabilities to be in certain aspects of society. So if you go back, not that far back in history, you know, people who were blind didn't go to a regular school, um, even in British Columbia until 1979. I started school in 1980 and I was the first wave of of integration into the typical school system. So there might've been some kids that went to school and I know there are some who didn't go to Jericho school for the blind, but it was open until 1979. So it was kind of, you know, that whole, how are we going to educate students who are blind in a regular school system wasn't really figured out until the eighties. So that's not that long ago. And then of course, yeah, that filters into everything, right? Like um, jobs. Post, post-secondary as well, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think that a lot of, up until probably around the same time, going to university was not, I mean, probably happened, but I would imagine that it didn't happen all that frequently. Or there might not have been accommodations in place so that mm-hmm. we could be successful if we did go, right? So if yeah. somebody in a wheelchair, if buildings didn't have a ramp to get in or an accessible washroom, for example, then maybe they, obviously they're not going to be able to attend. So it's, it's in, I guess to me, systemic ableism is if the facility, the program, whatever it is, the website is not accessible, it kind of sends a message that we haven't considered people with disabilities and they're not important is kind of the that's that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. Some other examples. Um, well, let's talk, I guess, accommodations being a bit of an afterthought. Not a bit. They usually are. <laughs> so, they are most definitely an afterthought. <laughs> yeah. And that's like kind of where we get into the whole um, inclusivity versus kind of making accommodations is if things were inclusive from the beginning, then we wouldn't have to make things accessible. Mm, right. So like, uh, I don't know, I'm thinking of the iPhone, which is amazing. And we're so thankful that smartphones are accessible now, but it took not three generations of It took three generations of iPhone for accessibility to appear, uh, even though voiceover was being introduced on the Mac. And of course, that, that boils down to a lot of technological developments, right? Like a lot of how... Uh, Kiosks at fast food restaurants are all now touchscreen, or mm-hmm. even elevators in newer apartment buildings are touchscreen, um, or any sort of any sort of terminal type appliances, appliance, or even uh, transaction points. Uh, you know, a lot of them are now moving towards a touch-based interface, which is fine because it looks great and it's much more convenient because you don't have to press buttons. Uh, 
of course, unless no. you can't see what you're actually touching. So <laughs> yes, not fine, actually. <laughs> not fine. Mm-hmm. Especially, Especially if when you the want tap to... on your credit card isn't working. Right. Or yeah, and you need to um, key in your code and you don't, your only option is to tell somebody your code so they can do that for you, which is really not acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. I know when we needed a new washer and dryer, <laughs> it was hard to find something that was still dials and buttons that you could feel. And we ended up getting a pretty cheap washer and dryer because that's what I needed. I was like, I'm so, doing, I do the laundry. <laughs> so, so, and I mean, in fairness, a lot of them now work with companion apps on phones and whatnot, but mm-hmm. even those apps are still sometimes a little bit on the clunky side when it comes to accessibility. Mm-hmm. So. Or a lot of times like the apps will release new updates, but then the new updates will make the interface not screen reader accessible. Mm-hmm. Yes. But you know, the, the one thing that uh, has hit me hard as a foodie is uh, the fact that menus are now all scanned, which is fine uh, because once you, depending on the menu, uh, you know, you, you would think, well, QR code menus make things easier for everybody because they're online now. Well, that's not entirely true because with restaurants, some have fantastic online menus. So shout out to all the restaurants who do that. But there are still a lot of restaurants who will scan a copy of their paper menu, which turns into a imaged PDF. So even if we scan the QR code, sounds great until it actually opens, then it just doesn't work because mm-hmm. we can get back to the same issue. So really any, any business that has made those decisions certainly is not thinking of people who are blind and I'm sure it's not an intentional thing. It's just advances in technology, but these advances, that's why it's systemic are just kind of leaving us behind. Conveniences in technology that don't apply necessarily to everybody. Mm -hmm. So another example of systemic ableism is the fact that if you live on a disability pension, you live beneath the poverty line. And and I think what's even more kind of frustrating is that if you want to, you know, get married or move in with somebody in a relationship situation, you there that person's income is um factored into your income. So if they make too much, you will lose some or all of your Mm -hmm. benefits. If they are Mm -hmm. on disability as well, it will impact both of you. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, kind of a really frustrating situation for somebody because if, you know, with anybody in a new relationship, moving in with somebody, you're not really sure if it's going to work out or not. And once Mm -hmm. you've lost your benefits now, if it's not going well and you need to leave that relationship, how are you going to do that with no income? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the fact that even with the extra that we are allowed to make, the sum total of income that anyone with a disability, we're not talking just blind people now, but any person with a disability, uh, the amount that they can make maximum is still below the poverty line. Yes. So, and even during the pandemic in the beginning, when they were doing all of these things like making the disability 1500 a month and then the CESB and the CERB which was the $2000 um extra a month if we got that for all 12 months of the year we would still be below the poverty line any other examples of systemic ableism you guys want to talk about well of course the one that we haven't talked about is employment uh where people will tend to 
you know, judge whether they should accept a disabled candidate based on whether their offices can accommodate them or not. Um, and sometimes with accommodations being expensive and sometimes needing a little bit of extra uh, from the company budget or from, you know, a little bit of extra work uh, to change a certain thing about the system, uh, that will, that's probably the biggest barrier to most people. Yeah. And I think, I mean, most people just have an assumption that, well, they wouldn't be able to do the job if they were blind. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, someone who's blind wouldn't be able to do the job, right, right. not recognizing like, yeah, of course you wouldn't be able if you were blind because you don't have any of the skills you, you haven't know, learned. Uh, yeah. You haven't learned the tricks of yeah. the trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more in detail, I think, with uh, later when we talk about more personal examples of ableism. But I think systemically, that's where the biggest problem is, is where someone will look at a resume and say, oh, this person needs a wheelchair. This person needs an interpreter. But we can't provide it because mm-hmm. we don't have the budget or we don't have enough staff who can do this. So we can't say yes to them. And, you know, I just want to say while we're talking about this, that they've actually done studies and people with disabilities who are employed are your best employees. We are so grateful to have a job. We work, we're always on generally speaking, but I would say the majority of people are on time. We're putting in extra work because we probably feel like we need to overcompensate a little bit. Like hire us. We're great. I would I would just (laughs) I would just like to also add that any if you hire a person who is blind, uh, you will be saving on your electric bill because the li- odds are <laughs> lights won't be necessary. That is a qualification every totally blind person has on their resume or probably doesn't, but should have on their resume. Um, That's funny. So. I, I think there's other people that work in the office though, Clement. So, oh, <laughs> you know, unless you're, you got your own office, I guess the light's off in there. You have yeah. your own just office. Just turn space, it off it's... to the one cubicle. That's right. <laughs> right. Okay, so moving along to maybe what's more surprising or um, maybe even more interesting, I feel like, are just some examples of some common ableist beliefs. So while we're just talking about the assumption that a a person who's blind cannot do most jobs, I, I don't know how many times I've had the question, like, what kind of jobs do blind people do? And there's this, well, they could be a massage therapist or a counselor <laughs> or work in a, or work in a call center or yeah. behind a computer, but yeah. that's usually about it. Yeah. So there's actually like a wide, wide, wide range of jobs that people who are blind are, or partially sighted are doing. And, uh, Shout out to our Exploring Work Wednesday program. Every month we talk to a different person who is working, who is blind or partially sighted about their job. So, and those are all going to be eventually on uh, on our website. So you'll be able to listen to those interviews and and see for yourself that there's quite uh, quite a range of jobs that we can do. Yeah, I have a lot of personal experience with this because I'm interested in working in nutrition and health sciences, which falls under the science, technology, engineering, and math STEM kind of sector of education. And I think for one, I mean, there aren't really as many women in STEM, but also like a disabled woman working in the STEM field is also kind of, it's not unheard of, but it's definitely not as common. Mm -hmm. 
For sure. Neither is the field I'm in, which is uh, teaching ESL. I don't personally know of any other blind person, at least in North America, who is uh, teaching ESL to international students. So another one, which maybe plays into the job one too, is the assumption that people with disabilities need help most of the time. And, and this plays out for me in just being out in the world, maybe on the SkyTrain platform and somebody grabs me and pulls me onto the train thinking that I don't know it's there or that I don't know where the door is or, you know, usually I think, I think the intention is to be helpful, but in doing that, you're assuming I needed help in the first place, which in most cases I didn't. So that's one I experience a lot and uh, kind of drives me a little crazy. Especially in my neighborhood when there's um, no sidewalk. So I'm basically constantly running, walking towards oncoming traffic and that kind of scares people, even though I know what I'm doing and O&M wise, I've been taught how to do it safely. Mm-hmm. And I know it does come out of a place of concern when you see someone who's blind, you know, walking on the street especially a busy street. I live on a major street and I know they're worried, but I also know what I'm doing at the same time. I've had somebody grab the back of my backpack as I was stepping on an escalator because they were nervous about how fast I was walking, but I knew exactly what I was doing. I, I could hear the escalator. My cane touches the, the metal graded part at the top of the escalator before I even step onto it. I'm very aware, (laughs) but they were trying to be helpful, but in doing so actually did something that could have caused me injury. So, oh, so frustrating. You know, like, like we've been like our, our late, our social climate recently has kind of demonstrated when you assume things and don't talk to people first, uh, much more harm can be done than good. So, I think that's the key. And yes. and these are all often invisible hands that are helping yes. Yes. and without anybody saying anything. So and it's the assumption that we just always need help. I mean, sometimes yeah. we maybe do need help, but yeah. a lot of the times we wouldn't be out there in the world by ourselves if we didn't have the skills to navigate that situation. Like it's not like Absolutely. we go to the SkyTrain and just hope that a well-meaning person will come along to help us onto the train, right? And I just, I don't, yeah, I'm not, I don't, I I want to educate people about this because this does happen a lot. And it is, it's not people who know me. It's, it is strangers who maybe Mm -hmm. have never interacted with somebody who's blind before. Yeah. And I think all of us have experienced that. I experienced one time, which demonstrated to me the importance of talking first, because uh, I had been, I had been at my Aikido, my martial arts class that evening, and we were training, uh, to develop our skills with a specific type of technique that starts from with being grabbed by the shoulder from behind. And uh, I was walking home and I got into my station and I was getting off and I was at the top of the stairs and somebody ran up behind me and grabbed me in the exact way that I'd been training for the past two hours. And uh, it was a very near miss uh, (laughs) of, of muscle memory. It was, I was this close to accidentally very very accidentally throwing him down the stairs and that, right. that would not have been a good that would not have ended well I would have felt super guilty uh justifiably so because I shouldn't you know but at the same time that is the kind of thing that can happen if you assume that the person you grab needs to be grabbed well uh, and, ex- and good point like we can't see 
So if we get grabbed by a stranger, it, it is a natural, like I tend to pull away and say, I'm fine. Thank you. And not necessarily with a smile on my face because you know, um, it's always been somebody helpful, yep. but what if one day it's not, what if it's yep. somebody grabbing me for a different reason? Right. Yep. Like, and so, yeah, and so, yeah so. exactly. So really um, just check in, ask us, yes. do you need some assistance? Do you need some check-ins help? Check-ins are good. Conversations yeah. are good. Words. We like words. We like words. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Uh, another assumption, Assu- assuming people with disabilities lives are so hard and should be pitied. I think the biggest uh, thing with me is I was born visually impaired. So when I've been told that in the past, like, oh, it must be so hard. I kind of don't really know anything differently. So to me, it is easy. And even with other people who I know who lost their vision later, they got used to it eventually. I can't really speak for them because that's not my own story. But I know for myself, I've just known no different. And it's just my life and I don't find it any harder personally. The thing I find hard is mostly the societal reaction to my visual impairment, but mm-hmm. not the actual going through the different motions in life. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think I think part of it is that people tend to think about it from a position of, oh, what if I was to be like that? And, you know, Sean already mentioned it earlier, but I think there's a difference between well, of course, if you lost your sight today, it would be a, it would be, it would be devastating and disorienting and tough. And but um, for people who have had literally decades of experience, uh, sounds funny to say as you know, coming from two young people, say, well, decade isn't a lot <laughs> much. But you know, f- you know, when but literally with people who are born with a disability will have decades of experience, years, and so we develop tricks and workarounds that people who don't have disabilities just don't tend to imagine. And I think that's why people think of it as so tough and pitiful and sad because for them, if they were to lose their vision tomorrow, it would be tough and pitiful and sad. And well, and they're, they would have lost so much, but if you're born without seeing you're not, it's not like you were walking through life comparing everything to how it was before. Cause it's never, you know, I've, I've never seen the stars. I'm curious I'm curious a little because they get talked about so much, but does it really impact my life that I have never seen the stars? Not really. Sure. And, and I think in fairness too, even for people who lose their vision later on, I think there's something to be said for, you know, learning to be being, being by nature, human beings, we are adaptable and we are malleable to change, but ideally with the right support systems in place, with the right people in your life, that toughness would hopefully ease and it won't happen overnight too it's a whole like journey and process kind of of healing and learning and relearning I think the the ableism piece is you see a white cane and you instantly feel sorry for that person uh-huh. without uh, knowing anything about their circumstances or for their sure. situation right for sure another one uh, assuming we won't enjoy certain activities because of our disability. So for blindness, it could be like, well, you probably don't like movies if you can't see or. Yeah. Blind, or, people, don't, blind people don't watch Netflix. Yeah. Any, or maybe even like, well, you wouldn't want to go to a hockey game or yeah. you wouldn't, I, you know, I won't invite you to do this thing because you're blind and you probably wouldn't enjoy it. 
but that's not true. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, there's probably some things I wouldn't enjoy, but that might be, it's, it's not just blindness, it's personality too, right? Of course. It's just interests. Mm-hmm. There's so many, you know, different ways to experience things through our different senses. Like with movie, I kind of focus more on the plot and dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would, kind of, oh, oh, sorry. Finish your thought. I was going to say, I also kind of, I try to explain it to people as like, I'm like a normal person. Like there is no normal, but I'm like everyone else. So some people who are in their twenties do like movies and some don't. I happen to be one that does. Well, and for me, I would rather be included, even if it's something that like, okay, my son's not going to listen to this podcast, right? (laughs) We have booked a family vacation to Hawaii next March. It's a surprise uh, to the kids. And um, we're just talking with our friends about what activities we might do. And somebody said something about, well, I guess you wouldn't want to go whale watching. And okay, like, I don't know how much of whale watching I could experience. I don't know, like, you know, will I be able to hear the whales? That would be cool. That would be worth it for me if I knew I would be able to hear them. But regardless, if everyone's going whale watching, I'd rather be part of that experience, even if I couldn't see what was happening, than stay at home at, you know, stay at the hotel by myself while everybody goes off and does that fun, cool thing, and mm-hmm. then talks about it the whole rest of the night. And I wasn't mm-hmm. a part of it. Mm-hmm. And it's still like, I've gone whale watching and it's still, you know, fun. You're on the boat, you have like the breeze, you're on the water. Right. Yeah, exactly. So we can experience something maybe in a different way and it might not be the same, but it doesn't mean that we don't want to be part of it. Sometimes it's not the experience that counts. Sure. We may not, you know, visually enjoy whale watching. But the fact that we're invited to participate in whatever way we can, even if it's asking someone to describe it or just being on the boat along with everybody else, that can sometimes do much more uh, to make someone feel included rather than the inverse of saying, oh, well, you don't, you probably don't enjoy, you probably wouldn't enjoy this. So I'm just not going to invite you. Well, and usually it's not stated. It's just, you're just not included or, you're, mm-hmm. you know, an assumption is made. Uh-huh. Maybe it's not even suggested as an activity, but I also wouldn't want to find out that we didn't go whale watching because everybody thought that wouldn't be right. fun for me. Right. Yeah. So they're all resentful because right. they want to go. And that's the biggest fear, right? Is you don't want to be the one person who causes everybody else to have a bad day because mm-hmm. everybody canceled something because you were there. Yes, uh, and I, I think I think we've all experienced that before, and it's not not a good not a good feeling. Next one I have is assuming blind people are messy or clumsy. <laughs> I'm messy uh, and clumsy, but that's not because I'm blind. That's just because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very messy or clumsy, and I. I feel like that this I can thank my mother for. She was very much on me my whole childhood about not making a mess and being, you know, especially when I was eating and yeah, yeah it's just cause you can't see what you're doing. Doesn't mean doesn't give you an excuse to make a mess. No, it doesn't no, mean you don't know you're making a mess. It doesn't mean you can't clean up your own mess. Like yep. we can use our uh, sense of touch. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like I have to take that back now and say that I'm not actually <laughs> as messy as I made myself sound. But, I was uh, say, I was like sighted people who are, 
just as messy and just as clumsy. And I think the biggest thing is when you can't see that other people are messy or clumsy. And when someone in your life kind of picks apart every single little thing wrong with you, it can be pretty damaging to self-confidence. And I didn't know this. I didn't know that sighted people kind of can spill things or knock things over. And so it's, so it's it's hilarious the times when we like when I go out for dinner with people I went out last week for the first time of course since uh like first proper dinner since COVID uh, mm-hmm. after Aikido with my some of my senior students and they were all sighted and I had this panic attack because I was like man what am I gonna do like if I mess up or if I spill something like I hadn't been to dinner with sighted with able-bodied people in so long uh, without any other blind people, that part of my brain just went bonkers. Uh, and I just <laughs> was like, how do I do this thing again? Mm-hmm. Um, and the first thing, of course, we sat down and uh, one of my friends uh, spilled her drink. And <laughs> we all laughed at her about it for about five minutes or so. And, you know, we picked on her about it. And, but that was such a moment of relief for me because I went, they do it too. Um and I think it, I think it really helps, um, like Nika said, when, when you're, everything is being picked apart, when you, when you're being, when you feel like you're being scrutinized, uh, it's nice to know that you're not the only one who does it. And when someone cited does it, it gives you a sense of camaraderie and a sense of, oh, I can be a little gracious with myself because mm-hmm. even cited people spill drinks. We're definitely not more messy or more clumsy. We're kind of just as much, and that's also kind of an individualistic thing. Well, but of course, that's that's an ableist assumption, right? Is that even if we make the same amount of mess, it's because it'll of our automatically awareness. be attached to the disability or something related. So years ago, I was in Paris uh, for New Year's Eve, and um, we were in this little. I don't know, little bistro kind of place. I was with two friends and I ordered, I think it was a, a champagne and orange juice and it came in this really tall skinny glass and they put it in front of me, but I didn't know exactly where it was. Anyways, I knocked it over and the bartender or the the server came back with another one and literally taped it to the table, like made this big production of taping the glass to the table so that I wouldn't knock it over, which I'm sure he wouldn't have done if I don't know. And maybe he was just a jerk, but I feel like he probably wouldn't have done that if I was not visually impaired. So (laughs) yeah, like, of course you knocked over your glass because you're blind and you're probably going to knock over this one too. So I'm just going to tape it to the table. It was very embarrassing. Okay, this is a big one. Um, Assuming that we want to be cured, those messages that go out in the world, like that our life will have meaning when we can see or that it doesn't have meaning if we can't or, you know, that life is so miserable that we must be cured. I don't know. I feel like that's, yeah, that's definitely something that a lot of people feel. Um, And I... I don't know if I want to be cured, honestly. I don't walk around thinking about it, that's for sure. I I agree with that. Yeah, I think my life has been very meaningful and very full, and Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be the person that I am if I wasn't blind. So I can echo that. um, I have a kind of recent story about this, um, is that 
where I'm at right now and with my condition, Peter's anomaly, there is a potential cure that they don't know if it's going to work. And where I'm at is kind of, I'm open to it um, and I'm willing to take it, but I'm also not actively pining for a cure. And I went to see this ophthalmologist who specializes in this type of surgery and with this eye condition. And the way she spoke to me in the office was kind of like, okay, we're going to book you for these tests. We're going to do this. We're going to see if you're a candidate for the surgery. And not once did she ever ask if I was interested. Um, I was never asked what my opinion was. It was kind of the assumption that I was ready to go all in into all of the treatment and into the surgery preparation. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, I feel like it's such a personal decision. It's such a personal thing. Right. And, and I'm sure there are people who are blind who would jump at an opportunity to be cured, but I guess it's just the assumption that Mm-hmm. We are not okay with the way we are mm-hmm. and we wish we were something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there would have been, yes, but it's kind of the principle of the matter that I would have liked to be given a choice. Mm-hmm. Well, and something that happens occasionally related to this is when strangers say that they will pray for you. And mm-hmm. I'm assuming when they say that they're meaning I will pray for you to be cured And I've actually had a bit of a conversation with an individual who said that. And I said, well, what if God wants me to be this way? And he said, oh, I don't think so, honey. (laughs) And that was kind of well. (laughs) So speak, speaking as speaking as a Christian, it's, it's hilarious how many times I've had this conversation with other Christians. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had one lady outright tell me that she thought I was wrong. (laughs) Um. But, you know, and, and speaking to any Christian who may be listening, uh, prayer is great. There is nothing wrong with praying for someone, but there is something to be said to Sean's question. Okay, we have so much more to say. And really what we're going to dive into next is how all of this sort of systemic ableism and assumptions leads to internalized ableism. But we are going to make this a two-parter. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. So please join us again because the conversation is continuing and it's quite fascinating. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share these episodes with with your friends and family, spread the word, like and subscribe, and please join us again next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.